Good morning. We do have a full house and thankful that you're a part of it. If you noticed in the bulletin, some uh, good news to share. Uh, we get to welcome Lauren Kennedy to our office staff, and we're so grateful for that. Rachel Basham has served our, uh, our church very well for the last nine years, uh, and we're so grateful for all that she's done for us. She's taken a job with her family business, and we all panicked, uh, and then we prayed, Lord, you're going to have to help us. And he did, and he brought Lauren our way, and we're so grateful for that. She'll begin Monday, and so I just uh, clue you in on that and just encourage her when you see her. We're grateful that she can join our office staff. I thank, you, I thank Bear, uh, Marty for uh, leading these songs today, talking about the death of Jesus. That's going to be our theme. We're beginning a new series that's focusing on what the apostle called things of first importance. Um, and this uh, is something we need to think about and really never move beyond. They are the cornerstones of our faith. Look again at the screen. Jacob read this earlier in our worship. I want to look at it again. 1 Corinthians 15, verses 1 through 4. Now, brothers, I want to remind you of the gospel I preached to you, which you received and on which you have taken your stand. By this gospel, you are saved if you hold firmly to the word I preached to you, otherwise you believed in vain. For what I received I passed on to you as of first importance, that Christ died for our sins according to the scriptures, that he was buried and that he was raised on the third day according to the scriptures. The gospel of Jesus Christ, the good news, is the death and burial and resurrection of Jesus and Paul said these are of first importance. These are foundational. So we're going to begin our series talking about the death of Jesus. Now we don't enjoy talking about death, and yet as we were able to even enjoy, can I use that word, these songs about the death because it's so meaningful. It means so much to us, and it's critical to our faith. Several years ago in Newsweek magazine, there was an article on how the different world religions view Jesus' death. And this is critical because they talked about the, the views of the Jews and the Muslims and the Hindus and the Buddhists and the Christians. And look on the screen. The article concluded with these words. Clearly, the cross is what separates the Christ of Christianity from every other Jesus. In Judaism, there is no precedent for a Messiah who dies, much less as a criminal. In Islam, the story of Jesus' death is rejected as an affront to Allah himself. Hindus can only accept a Jesus who escapes the degradation of death. Buddhists say the crucifixion does no justice to Jesus. The image of a benign Jesus has universal appeal. Most of the world cannot accept Jesus of the cross. Most of the world cannot accept Jesus of the cross. That's true, isn't it? Is this not what Paul meant in 1 Corinthians 1.18? For the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. The death of Jesus was so powerful, the story of the cross can melt anyone's heart. 
we, we sing these songs, we talk about it, we think about it. So I, I want us to use our, our time this morning and just open our minds, open our hearts, and open the Word. And I want us to see four things that stand out about the death of Jesus. Here's the first one. The death of Jesus was prophesied. It was a prophesied death. It wasn't something that just happened. This wasn't a change of plans. This wasn't a, a plan B at all. He was chosen, as the Bible says, before the creation of the world. And this is so important. Look at 1 Peter 1, verse 18 and following. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers, but with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect. He was chosen before the creation of the world, but was revealed in these last times for your sake. Chosen before. Prophesied. This was a plan all along. And fulfilled prophecy is one of the strongest points, one of the strongest things to know, the proof about the death, burial, and the resurrection. The Bible tells so many prophecies. We, can't, we could do a whole year-long study just of the prophecies of Jesus. But hundreds of years before he was born, we, we, we read the prophecies of his birthplace, of his lineage, of his betrayal, the details about his death. One after another after another, they tell about his life, but they specifically mention the details of his death. Let me read one passage of scripture to you that the Bible's talking about Jesus' death. And as I read these words, they're not going to be on the screen. I just want you to, to picture in your minds the death of Jesus. If it helps, you may want to close your eyes. But listen to these words. All who seek me mock me. They hurl insults, shaking their heads. He trusts in the Lord. Let the Lord rescue him. My strength is dried up, and my tongue sticks to the roof of my mouth. You lay me in the dust of death. Dogs have surrounded me. A band of evil men has encircled me. They pierce my hands and my feet. I count all my bones. People stare and gloat over me. They divide my garments among them and cast lots for my clothing. That's from Psalm 22. David wrote those words, as one author stated, 950 years before Jesus was born. Hundreds of years before death by crucifixion was even a thing. They had not even invented that form of death yet. But God had set in, plan, set in motion a plan to save mankind Maybe when you think of prophecy like me, you think of Isaiah 53, written 700 years before the death of Christ. Look at verse 5, Isaiah 53, verse 5, but he was pierced for our transgressions, he was crushed for our iniquities, the punishment that brought us peace was upon him, and by his wounds we are healed. Verse 7 continues, he was oppressed and afflicted, yet he did not open his mouth. He was led like a lamb to the slaughter, and as a sheep before her shearers is silent, so he did not open his mouth. I've often wondered how was Mary able to be there at the death, at the cross of Jesus. Just watching her son die on the cross. And I wonder if she was just trying to absorb what all is going on. Did her mind go back to... The eighth day of Jesus' life, 
some 30, 33 years earlier when she took Jesus to the temple and Simeon made those words. Remember what Simeon said? Look on the screen, Luke chapter 2, verse 34. And Simeon blessed them and said to Mary, his mother, This child is destined to cause the falling and the rising of many in Israel and to be a sign that will be spoken against so that the thoughts of many hearts will be revealed and a sword will pierce your own soul too. So these prophecies being fulfilled, watching her son being scourged and dying on the cross, all of that was working to prove he truly was the Son of God. So it was a prophesied death. Secondly, notice this, it's a voluntary death. And again, that is key. He willingly chose it. He understood fully what he was getting into. This isn't one of those that, I don't know how this is going to go. He knew how it was going to go. He knew exactly what it would entail. When Jill Briscoe's son David was a little boy, he hurt his arm at school on Friday. Teachers told the parents about it. They looked at it, it seemed to be okay, and they thought, well, we'll just see if it heals on its own. Maybe it's no big deal. But on Saturday, it was no better. And so they determined, and they told little David, they said, well, if it's not better by the weekend, we'll go to the hospital Monday and, and have it x-rayed. Well, all Saturday afternoon, and, then, and even on Sunday, little Billy was, was just so... Little David was so quiet, withdrawn, arm was not any better. Monday, they were getting in the car, and they noticed little David's face was just white, and his eyes were just full of fear. So as the dad was driving off, he could look in the rearview mirror and just see, he, he just wasn't saying anything. He said, David, we're just going to the hospital to get an x-ray. And little David said, it's all right, Dad. I know what it means to be executed. The parents had no idea that little David thought he was going to die. And they wondered, why did he even get in the car with them? Jesus knew exactly what he was going to, getting into. When he entered Jerusalem, he knew what he was walking into. When he went up that hill, he knew it was just a matter of moments Skip Gray in his book, The Way of the Cross, says, Long before his death, the cross was an ugly, hideous reality. Listen to how some writers of that day characterized the cross of Christ. When Jesus died, so the cross was called the infamous stake, the criminal wood, the most wretched of details. Cicero said the word cross should be far removed from us. One author said they intentionally made their criminals take the longest route to the place of the skull where they were crucified. They wanted to add to the humiliation. They wanted to make them meander in front of as many people as possible. Chuck Swindoll said this, There's a difference in executions today and back then. Today it's very private. Whereas in Jesus' day it was meant to be public. It was meant to say that crime doesn't pay. In our day, we kill the man swiftly through lethal injection or an electric chair. In Jesus' day, the man's death was meant to linger. In spite of knowing full well that everything that was involved in the cross, Jesus voluntarily chose to die, to give his life. 
Look at John 10, 17 and 18. For the reason my Father loves me is that I lay down my life only to take it up again. No one takes it from me, but I lay it down on my own account and have authority to lay it down and authority to take it up again. This command I receive from my Father. Jesus was making it clear. His death was no accident. This was the plan. This was the choice. It was the only way the world could be saved, that sins could be forgiven. You know, if you've ever experienced an accident, as a child especially, you might remember that for the rest of your life. just kind of has a way of sticking with you, or maybe somebody else in your family. I can remember as a child, my neighbor had like a, a four or five foot swing attached to their house. And, and they were, he and his little brother, what, they were trying to swing that swing as, as high as they, they could. We've all done that. Well, as he was doing that, it started going sideways, and he reached his hand out to kind of push the swing and to keep it from hitting the side of the house. Well, that's where the electrical panel was. And you know how the electrical panels have that little D-clip that you can pull out to open the door? His finger got caught in that clip, and as he went forward, it, yes, yanked his finger off. Why did I tell you that story? Because of the grimace on your face. When we hear about something like that happening, when we read about something about that happening, we just grimace. We just, we don't want to think about it. Why? Because it's so unpleasant. I wonder why I don't flinch anymore when I read Jesus was crucified. I wonder why I don't grimace as I'm reading in Scripture all the details. Why is there no lump in my throat? Or maybe yours too. Is it because we're, we're so familiar with it? Is that it? We, we just, we're so aware, it's so common, and, and we're just so used to it. Has the story become so familiar that we've forgotten the significance of what really was going on? We could spend a whole lesson just talking about the gruesome details of his death. It was prophesied, it was voluntary. Notice this, it was also distinctive. There are several things about Jesus' death that no one else can claim. I want to just share a few of these. These are mostly going to be from Luke chapter 23. If you want to follow along, they're also going to be on the screen. But notice a number of things that makes Jesus' death very distinctive for us. The first was this, the darkness that happened. Luke chapter 23, verse 44 says, It was now about the sixth hour, and darkness came over the whole land until the ninth hour, for the sun stopped shining. Now remember, Jesus was arrested at night at the garden. Remember that? And so all night long, he went from one kangaroo court to another between the Jews and the Romans, scourged through the night, after that being nailed to the cross at nine in the morning. So then at noon, what Luke calls the sixth hour, 12 noon, middle of the day, that's the point. Middle of the day, darkness comes for three hours, as if it were nighttime. Now, some try to explain this as an eclipse. There was a natural phenomenon going on here, but scientifically that would be impossible. Because it was the time of the Passover, and that was always a new moon, always a new moon. So it could not be a physical eclipse. But think about it. When a storm comes in the middle of the day and those dark clouds, you've ever been that where it's bright one moment and then boom, the clouds come and you, 
and you, especially if you're inside and you feel like, oh, what just happened? There's a, an eerie feeling about that darkness. Folks, that's a cloudy day. Think about pitch black in the middle of the day. And not just for a moment as a cloud or a storm passes by, but for three hours. That's what's going on here. Douglas Webster says, at the birth of the Son of God, there was brightness at midnight. At the death of the Son of God, there was darkness at noon. Here's something else that made his death distinctive. The temple curtain was torn in two. Look again at Luke 23, 45, verse 45 and 46. And the curtain of the temple was torn in two. Jesus called out with a loud voice, Father, into your hands I commit my spirit. When he said this, he had breathed his last. But don't miss the historical and especially the spiritual significance of this temple veil being torn. And we've been studying this in depth in our study of Hebrews, what this meant. But you know this as well. The, the temple curtain is, is what separated the Holy of Holies, the very presence of God, from everyone else. And the only one who could ever go in there was the high priest, and he only once a year on the Day of Atonement. And then he was carrying the blood of the sacrifice to make the, uh, the sacrifice and the forgiveness of the people's sins. They would be forgiven for a year. And then the next year they'd have to do it again and then again. So the curtain is not just something to make the, the tabernacle or then the temple to be a beautiful place. It served a purpose. It was a line of demarcation. The common person could not, could not cross. Even the priest could not cross. Only the high priest and only then once a year. But on the day, the moment Jesus died... The temple curtain was torn. Jesus came to take our sins away once and for all. Oh, there's so much significance to that. Let's keep going. At that very moment, there was an earthquake. So think about this. The moment he dies, all these things are happening. Matthew 27 verse 51 says, At that moment, the curtain of the temple was torn in two from top to bottom. The earth shook and the rocks split. So what made this earthquake so spectacular was the timing of it. As Matthew says, at that moment that Jesus breathed his last. So you've got darkness, you've got the temple curtain being torn in two, you've got this earthquake. Calvin Miller describes this detail like this. The earth shuddered in her awful crime. Well, here's another miracle that adds to the distinctive nature of Jesus. And this is one of those that we may not remember or might just read over in our Bibles. But number four, the resurrection of the saints. And imagine the impact this must have had. Matthew 27, verse 51. The tombs broke open and the bodies of many holy people who had died were raised to life. They came out of the tombs and after Jesus' resurrection, they went into the holy city and appeared to many people. What would that have been like? The gospel tells us it, it, it happened, but they don't tell us many details beyond that. You know, was it a brief moment, like they appeared and then they're gone? Or did they continue to live and they died again? We don't know. The Bible doesn't say. Can you imagine what it would be like for someone you know, they've come back from the grave and there they are with you again? And all of this happened, not by accident, but by design God's design 
to prove this was no ordinary death. Jesus conquered the grave. Here's one more I want you to notice about Jesus' death. There were changed hearts. The people there, they were transformed because what they witnessed. Think about the thief on the cross realizing that the criminal was not a criminal, but the very Son of God beside him, changed for all eternity. The Roman centurion, who had no doubt seen just front row hundreds of deaths, It had to be common for him. While family members would have just been so embarrassed, so humiliated, just so overcome with emotion watching their loved one die. But for the centurion, that was just no big deal. You ever been at the checkout line in the grocery store and and the person who's who's checking you out? Remember when they used to have people to check you out at the grocery store? Go back in time with me. But you're there and they're checking you out and they're talking to the other cashier as if you're not there. They're just going about it, not even thinking about it. Is that, would that be what it was like for the Roman centurion? Just another Friday, thinking, okay, let's hurry up, wrap this up. I wonder what's for dinner. Not thinking about that gruesome moment, everything that's going on, but not that day. That day didn't just change his mind, it changed his world. Look at Luke chapter 23, verse 47. The centurion, seeing what had happened, praised God and said, Surely this was a righteous man. Matthew shares a few more details. Look at Matthew 27 54. When the centurion and those with him who were guarding Jesus saw the earthquake and all that happened, they were terrified and exclaimed, Surely this was the Son of God. Was it just the earthquake? Was it just the physical phenomenon of all that was going on? Mark's gospel shares the centurion was facing Jesus. He was taking it all in. But what did he witness? What was he aware of? Was it the manner in which Jesus was not frightened? Was it his resolute effort that he could see that Jesus knew what he was doing, even choosing the cross? Was it the first time he ever saw a criminal willingly put his hands out, cross his feet over, helping them to nail the nails into the hand? Witnessing all of that, no resistance. Was it the first time this Roman centurion had never heard profanity? What did he witness? What did he observe? We know what he heard. Father, forgive them. They know not what they're doing. We don't know what changed his mind. It could have been all of those things together. But he was a different man because he was in the presence of the Son of God and he knew it. And he didn't just know it, he said it. Look at Luke 23, verse 48. When all the people who had gathered to witness this sight saw what took place, they beat their breasts and went away. It was more than they could take. It was a moment of decision. See, Jesus' death was not just another death by crucifixion. It was something the world had never seen before or ever again. Well, here's one more thing I want us to learn. And this is extremely significant. Jesus' death was an atoning death. His death was an atoning death. Paul wrote, Jesus died for our sins according to the Scriptures. 
That word atonement is a big theological word. It, it just means to cover. Literally, it means to cover. It also means, in a meaning way, it means to appease. It means to cover, it means to appease, it means to make amends. And so the doctrine, if I can use that word, the doctrine of atonement is very important to the Christian. And it's deep, and we need to understand it because it's so significant. We're going to unpack this more in our small group Bible studies tonight. But we all need to grasp what this means. Jesus didn't just die as a martyr. It was more than that. He didn't just die to demonstrate God's love. He didn't just die to show us and give us an example to follow. Yes, all of those are true. But he died what the Bible calls a substitutionary death. It was a vicarious death. Or to put it in just everyday language, he died in our place. That's what makes his death so spectacular. But why? You ever thought about that? Why did Jesus have to die? People will ask that question. Why couldn't God just forgive? I mean, God tells us to forgive. Why, why couldn't we just forgive? I mean, that's what we're supposed to do. Why couldn't God just forgive people of their sins? Why did Jesus have to die? You ever wondered that question? Millard Erickson <clears throat> said those who raise this question actually reveal... They don't know God or don't know much about God. God is not only the one being wronged by our sins. God is, as he explains, the judge of the universe. He's the official administrator of the judicial system of the world. Remember in the Torah how again and again God would reveal himself to his people and talk about how he was a just God. Remember that? How he would be good to the righteous, his people. And how he would bring on punishment for those who had sinned. Erickson explains that for God to remove our guilt without requiring payment would, here's his quote, destroy the very moral fiber of the universe, the distinction between right and wrong. For God just to forgive would be like a weak judge turning loose the most vile of criminal, as if nothing happened. As if it's no big deal. Justice demands payment. Justice demands punishment. And we get that. I believe God put in all of us that sense of justice. And, and we, it bothers us when we see someone getting away with something when they need to be punished. Remember, even as a sibling, you see your, 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 your brother or sister get away with something. You want to call them out to your mom or dad. It is in us from our earliest of days. We see this challenge played out on the cross when one of the criminals say, aren't you the Christ? Save yourself and us. Ken Wire writes this, if only Jesus would save himself and us, Jesus knows something that the man hanging next to him doesn't. He knows he can choose one or the other. He can save himself or he can save us. He can't do both. That's why Jesus' death is an atoning death, an appeasing death, a death that covers our sins. His death on the cross is the fulfillment of all of the Old Testament. Remember, he said, I have come to fulfill the law. This is what he's talking about here. The Bible says in Hebrews 9.22, in, in fact, the law requires that nearly everything be cleansed with blood, 
Without the shedding of the blood, there is no forgiveness. So when Jesus was on the cross and about to die, he makes the statement, it is finished. Remember that one? To Telestai was actually the words that he spoke, to Telestai. And what we know, you've heard this before, in the Greek what that means, and that would be written at the bottom of an account once you paid it off. It meant paid in full. Or we might say, mission accomplished. So when Jesus said, it is finished, he was saying, mission accomplished. It's paid in full. So get the setting of this. Jesus' last words spoken on earth, it's finished. What's finished? What was finished? His life? No. It's much more than that. He's saying your sins are paid in full. The sin debt is forever paid. Mission accomplished. Look at Leviticus 17, 11. For the life of the creature is in the blood, and I have given it to you to make atonement for yourselves on the altar. It is the blood that makes atonement for one's life. So for those who heard those words, it is finished. What they heard is, your wait is over. Forgiveness is now available. Your sin debt has been paid. Everything. Everything was going to be so different in his kingdom. No longer must you go through someone else to have forgiveness of your sins. No longer is there a need for priests because as a believer, you're a priest. That's what the Bible calls us. You don't need a preacher. You don't need an elder. You don't need a priest. You can talk to God. The curtain has been torn. Access is yours. Jesus is our great high priest. I hope you know how much he wants you to get this. Not just that Jesus died on the cross, but he died on the cross for you. For you to have a way to God. Look at 1 Peter chapter 2, verse 24. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree so that we might die to sins and live for righteousness by his wounds. You have been healed. Jimmy shared several lines of that song, Just As I Am. And that's one of those that we've sung it for years. We know it by memory. We know it by heart. Just as I am. And there's a beautiful sentiment there about just as I am. Because God knows our sin problem. He knew our sin problem before we was born and had a sin problem. And he died for our sin problem. But here's the most beautiful thing we got to get, just as I am. That's when you're lost. He loves you. He died for you. But once you're saved, once you have repented of your sins, you've confessed your faith in Jesus, your sins are washed away in baptism, it's no longer just as I am, because you wear the righteousness of Jesus. You are saved. You are washed. So every week as you eat that bread and you drink that cup, you remember he gave his body, his body, his blood for you. And you realize a holy God sees in you a holy believer, someone who's washed. Is that you? Have you been washed? We're going to sing a song to encourage you to accept the salvation that Jesus made by dying on the cross for your sins. 
you're ready to confess your faith, we want to hear it and love you and support you. If you're ready to be baptized, we've got the water ready. Or if we can pray for you in any way, won't you come as we stand and sing to encourage you? If you keep...